What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. The Bible is primarily concerned only with agape, which is the unconditional love that is universal. So you don't do anything to earn it. It's not a special relationship. It's kind of the thing that humans want to ignore, right? Because it's like, it's not exclusive. It's universal and you can't do a darn thing to earn it. And so it's very uncapitalist. It's very un-American in that sense. And it's very non-individualistic and it's completely inclusive. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. Adam is not here this week. He is actually working deep undercover for the CIA, or he's in Toledo, one of the two. Anyway, uh, either way, he he will be back uh, for the last episode that we put out uh, for 2018. But in the meanwhile, we do have our last interview of 2018 as we uh, crawl across the finish line. Um, It has been one heck of a year. And uh, I'm lucky I still have a voice right now. So, anywho, um, we've got a really, really good one. Really excited about this. One of my favorite books of the year. Uh, Just came out. It's by Dr. Jacqueline Bussey. Jacqueline's amazing. Uh, Just a great writer, great personality. um, And on top of that, just a brilliant scholar um, as well. So, she is an award winning author. She's a professor, a theologian, a public speaker, and a student of life in all its messy beauty. Uh, her books include Love Without Limits, which is the new one uh, that we'll be talking about a lot on this episode, and her book from 2016, Outlaw Christian, which won the two, 2017 Gold Medal Illumination Award for Christian Living. Uh, she teaches religion, theology, and interfaith studies classes at Concordia College uh, in Min- Minnesota. Um where she also serves as the director of the Forum on Faith and Life. So, great, great episode. Um, Really had a good time with this one. And again, it's just a really, really great uh, uh, book. It's an easy read um, with a lot of really good material in it. And uh, I I just thought the the subject matter um, is really appropriate uh, for today's day and age when um, it can be sometimes hard to love people um, who are not uh, like us. So, um, it's a really, really great topic. Um, I think we could all use a little, little uplifting um, talk. So uh, hopefully you guys like this episode. I, I do want to say a quick thank you uh, to uh, some people um, who have made this podcast possible. Before I do that, though, if you like the music on this week's episode, uh, is a band called Sleeping at Last. Um, Adam and I are both huge fans of this band, and they actually do an entire... Uh, series of songs based on all of the numbers um, in the Enneagram. So if you're into the Enneagram, um, they wrote a song based on each number. It's really cool. So anyway, before uh, we get to the episode, I want to say a huge thank you just to everyone who has helped the Deconstructionist podcast become what it has become. Um, Adam and I can't believe it, uh, but believe it or not, uh, we are finishing up our third year as a podcast um, that started 
very humble beginnings. Um, and even the two of us have a hard time listening to some of our older episodes. But those of you who have stuck with it since the beginning, we commend you and thank you, thank you, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we can't wait to share with you what we have planned in the future in 2019. We definitely uh, have full intentions on continuing this on in whatever uh, shape or form um, it takes. Uh, but we would be remiss if we didn't thank everyone from, you know, those of you who are generous enough to support us on Patreon. Um, thank you so much. The folks who have left us kind reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. Um, to just the people who have reached out to us on social media and email just to share a little bit about your stories. That is so meaningful and encouraging to us. Um, you guys have no idea. Um, it means more than you could possibly imagine. Um, I also want to say thank you to uh, the folks that made uh, some of the other stuff possible. So huge thank you to uh, graphic designer Joe Ernst, who designed our sweet logo. Um, our, our friend and designer, Stephen Flug, who designed the, the wallpaper with all the cool gears and stuff on it. Um, a massive thank you to all the designers who came up with all the cool t-shirt designs on our website. Uh, so Joe, uh, Joe Ernst, uh, Chad Flanagan, Colin Rigsby, and Jason Turner who are all um, super brilliant uh, designers. If you guys need design work, let them know. Um, also, a big thank you, uh, all the photos that you see for the most part, all the professional-looking ones on our website, uh, were taken by our good buddy and photographer, Jared Hevron. Uh, so if you need photography work and you're out on the West Coast, uh, Jared's your guy. And, of course, Ryan Battles, who runs our website and uh, took it from um, the very amateur-looking website that it was to the beautiful thing that you see before you today. Uh, so a huge thank you to Ryan for that. Um, and also, of course, a massive thank you to all of the guests who agreed to come on our show. Uh, huge thank you to them uh, and all the great conversations uh, that always come from it. And, and a big thank you to all the musicians who allow us to use their incredible music uh, week in and week out. Um, a huge thank you there. It's become a very cool um, kind of a side thing that occurred as a result of the podcast um, that just started off as an experiment to kind of spruce up the episodes and turn into a, a thing that we have. And we even have Spotify playlist that we update with all the musicians that we use on the episodes. Um, so you can follow our, our Spotify playlist, uh, the deconstructionist, uh, I think it's just called the deconstructionist playlist on Spotify. Um, but you can certainly follow us there and, uh, uh and, uh, we update that uh, every new episode. So, um, and of course, uh, last but not least, uh, the you, the person listening to this these episodes. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for continuing to find value in what we do and and tune in every other week when we release new content and um, following along this crazy journey. So, thank you guys so much. Um, a very merry Christmas and happy holidays to all of you. Uh, we do have one more episode uh, left this year. Um, we're going to bring you a special Christmas message. Uh, but we hope your holidays are safe and that they're happy and healthy. Uh, we love all you guys, and uh, we will see you next time. But until then, without further ado, Jacqueline freaking Bussy.
right. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Thank you so much, Jacqueline and Bussy, for being here tonight and taking some time out of your schedule to, to talk with us. Yeah, it's great to be on. And thanks for having me, John. Absolutely. I, I, I don't say this often, uh, or I shouldn't say I don't say this lightly. Uh, this book, um, and, and I have to give my dad credit, you know, where credit is due. And we've kind of joked about the fact that this is, uh, we have like this unofficial uh, Dave Williamson series of, of guests on. Because uh, my dad is, like <laughs> I told you before we started recording, is a Lutheran pastor. And he, uh, he, he's given us quite a few suggestions. Like he's always given me books and sending me emails. And one of the books that he recommended to me that I checked out was your, was your new book. And I don't think it was even out yet. Um, but I checked it out. And when your publisher sent us copies, I absolutely devoured it on vacation. It is incredibly well written. Uh, and, and I say that because not all academics, uh, translate into excellent writers, but your, your, uh, your book is both well-written and well-researched. And so, um, kudos on that. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, one of the things I think the place we have to start is, um, you have this really interesting introduction to this book because this book almost didn't happen. Uh, you, you were originally with, uh, uh, another publisher and, uh, and you submitted your, your manuscript and, uh, they, they asked you to remove two chapters and, uh, and mm-hmm. so talk about that a little bit and then, uh, kind of how this, this book was almost kind of in a way resurrected. <laughs> it was resurrected, but it does have a really, uh, incredible backstory, right? So yeah, as you were saying, so this was a book that I wrote during the election year and I wrote it to kind of combat my own despair, if you will. <laughs> I felt that we were falling into a you know pit of polarization and I thought I have to do something that, you know, speaks to love across difference. So I thought I'll write a memoir about love across difference. And the book was in contract with a major publishing house, and they loved it. And as you said, when I submitted it, which was in, so I started writing in August of 2016, and I finished it in April of 2017, right on schedule. And I sent it to them, and they got me on the phone, and they said, we love the manuscript. It's so good. And there's a problem. And I was like, what's the problem? They said, it's the gays and the Muslims. And I'm quoting. That was their words exactly. And they said that the two chapters that I had that were written, you know, on my various friends and what they taught me and kind of an Islam 101, you know, chapter, they said that some of the stories I was telling were out of bounds. Theologically out of bounds was the phrase. Wow. And that I was, yep. And that I was telling stories that, quote, weren't in line with the values of the majority of readers. Oh. Which, of course, I, disagree, I disagreed with. And I was like, I, and I also don't care, right? You know, I don't write just to be in line, you know, with somebody else's values. I write to be, you know, in line with my own and what feels true to me and to my faith. So, yeah, I refuse to do it. And uh, they fired me. They terminated my contract. And the worst part was, John, that then they said, well, you know, we paid Jacqueline to write this book. So we own the rights to it. They had paid me a large advance, as most trade publishing companies do. And I had taken a year's worth of leave off of my regular job, which is teaching at Concordia College. And so I did not have the money to pay them back because... Obviously, I was living off that money for the year that I took off work to write it. So 
essentially they held the book hostage. They owned the rights. They had the book. They had the year of my life. And I fell into a certain amount of depression over that because I didn't know what I could do to get the book back. So, Oh my gosh. So, so talk about that because (laughs) what's, uh, what I think is even more fascinating about this story, obviously that, that part of it is, uh, is awful. And I I can only imagine, uh, from your perspective, somebody put, you know, your heart and soul into this book to have somebody tell you that, no, you have to take part of this out. Uh, especially Mm -hmm. two chapters that, that are, I I think personally are very, very important, uh, topics and subjects to speak about right now, especially in, as you said, this polarizing time. Uh, but I think, the way that this book was, was like I said before, like really resurrected is even more remarkable. Uh, so, so talk about that a little bit. How did that come to be? Yeah, exactly. So it starts off as this horrible story and then it really has this incredibly beautiful and redemptive ending. So yeah, I fell into a depression over this because I thought I can't, how do you beat the man? You know, so to speak, I can't buy this book back. We didn't have any obvious solution. And two months went by and I was a wreck, basically. And I was very ashamed. It's weird, you know, how I kind of internalized the shame over it. My publisher was very shaming. They're like, why don't you just make these changes? You know, why don't you just post these stories on your blog and just not in the book? And I was like, maybe because I don't have a blog. (laughs) Yeah, maybe because (laughs) I have integrity, you know. So too much integrity for that. So, yeah, what ended up happening was one day, like I said, two months had passed since I'd lost the contract and lost the book's rights. I was talking to a friend. And this is not in the book. So this you can only hear on the podcast. So they, (laughs) I was talking to a friend one day. And she goes, you know what, Jacqueline? She said, your publisher... They just want you to shut up and disappear. And you've given them exactly what they wanted. Mm. And I thought about that and it really just pierced my soul, their words. And I thought, you know what? I don't know what they wanted. You know, I can't speak for them. But what I can say is that that's exactly what I did. I did shut up and disappear. So I rediscovered my inner feisty and I walked home that very morning that she said that. And I took out some duct tape and a black Sharpie and I wrote censored in huge block letters across this duct tape. And I smacked it across my mouth and I took a selfie and I look awful in the selfie. I look like (laughs) I haven't slept for weeks. You know, of course, all that was true. And I thought though, this picture that I took captured how I felt on the inside And that's what I wanted to go public with was how their actions made me feel. And I sat down, my friend also recommended, she said, you know, you should write about this. And I had not written about what they had done. I don't know why, again, fear probably. And I just wrote a little short piece telling the absolute truth about what they had done. I didn't name the publisher. I'm not interested in revenge against them. I just wanted to tell my story. And as I wrote the piece, and got to the end of it, I realized something that is quite obvious, but was not obvious to me at the time, which was that I felt like they had taken everything. But as I was writing and I came to the end, I wrote this sentence, which was, love's not a candle. It's the freaking sun. Oh, I love that quote. <laughs> by which, right? By which I realized, John, they had not taken everything because, duh. The one thing that they were incapable of ever taking 
was my love without limits for my friends. And that was the spark of the whole conflict was that they had never taken that from me. So I post this on social media, right? I just post it on my private Facebook page just so my friends will know what's happened and people will stop asking me what's happened to your book? When's it coming out? You know, and incredibly on the very same day that I did that post, all of these people started tagging the CEOs of other presses, like people who worked at other publishing houses. And even more incredibly, on that very same afternoon, the senior acquisitions editor for a particular press called Fortress Press, yeah, he was about 900 miles from his house, sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, at a writer's conference, seated right next to my agent. And so my face appears on his phone on a, on a reshare of a reshare. And he turns to my agent, right, having no idea that that's my agent. And he's like, shows my picture. And he's like, do you know who Jacqueline Bussey is? And do you happen to know who her agent is? <laughs> and of course, my agent is like, what is that picture? And that is, I'm, you know, that's my author. You know, he's like, I'm her agent. And so only, like I say, only a couple of hours has passed since I've done this post. And so then my agent just, you know, from his phone, electronically sends my manuscript to Fortress Press. They read it. And within 24 short hours, 24 hours, they make an offer to help me buy back the rights to the book. That's over 60% of what I owed, which was enough for us to be able to make it and to buy the book back. So it's an incredible story of solidarity and a viral Facebook post, which completely sold the book in 24 hours. So it's an amazing story. That's insane. Uh, I mean, right. Good. I mean, I fortress press, come on. I mean, that doesn't tell you what they're all about. I mean, I don't know what would that's, that's an incredible story. (laughs) I know. Right. I'm so grateful to them for this. Absolutely. Yeah. The book was just resurrected, you know, because of that. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I, like I said, I think, uh, this is easily one of my favorite books I've read this year. And I I think it's probably because it, you know, as you said, it's so well-timed. Um, I mean, half the time I have to shut off my, my social media feed or turn off the news. It's just so depressing. I know, right? Yeah. True. So it's like, you know, to, to read this book about the different types of love uh, that you experience in your life, um, I, I think was probably like a breath of fresh air for me. Uh, so, and one of the things that you say at the very, very beginning of the book that I thought was very poignant is, I love what you say uh, when, when you're talking to your students in terms of the climate, current climate of disagreement. You mentioned uh, to your students, understanding and agreement are not the same thing. They never were. Love demands only the first, not the second. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's that's just it's just something I've really thought so much about lately. I heard someone the other day say something I think is true. They said, we've been tricked into hating each other. And that is how I would categorize being alive in this time, right? In this political climate, we've been tricked into we've been tricked into hating each other. So the current lie of the day is that if we disagree, we have to hate each other. We have to be at each other's throats. We have to silence one another. We have to reject one another. We have to demonize one another. It's exhausting. I mean, I think we're all tired of it. 
And I just want to, you know, issue the reminder to everybody that for our entire lives, we've loved people who are different from us and with whom we disagree. Probably half of our family members, right? Yeah. No family is a monolith of agreement. (laughs) We know how to love one another in the midst of disagreement. But right now we're being told, oh, no, you can't do that anymore. I just think that's absurd. I can understand where certain people are coming from, even if I disagree with them. And that doesn't mean that I compromise who I am at all. And to me, this is what it means to be an interfaith activist, which is one of the things that I am. You know, I can very much understand a lot of why people love their religion, practice the religion they have or the the non-religion that they happen to practice, even though I obviously don't agree with that because that's not my tradition, but I can still very much value and respect them. These are the principles upon which a democracy is based, you know, like we've got this. And I'm tired of being told that we don't. To remember how to see Till the renaissance takes place Ersuscitates the color of paint and divinity You set the stage in this book really, really nicely by discussing uh, the Greek word for love, agape. Uh, And I think this is really cool. Talk about why that's so important. Yeah, this is really important to me, you know, as a person of faith, as a, as a Christian in the 21st century, it's fascinating, right? Because in, in our lives, we're obsessed with lots of different kinds of love, you know, like romantic love and friendship love and love of our family. And what's fascinating to me is that the Bible doesn't really give two craps about any of the kind of things I just said. Like the Bible is obsessed, you know, with agape. Like Jesus is obsessed with agape. And, you know, in the language of the New Testament, you know, which is Greek, there were you know, four different kinds of love. And and they had the kinds of love that I just mentioned, the love of our friends, you know, which is philia, romantic love, which eros. And like I said, the Bible is primarily concerned only with agape, which is the unconditional love that is universal. So you don't do anything to earn it. It's not a special relationship. It's kind of the thing that humans want to ignore, right? Because it's like, it's not exclusive. It's universal and you can't do a darn thing to earn it. And so it's very uncapitalist. It's very un-American in that sense. And it's very non-individualistic and it's completely inclusive. And that's the kind of love that when I sat down to reflect on what we're called to do in today's today's world, I felt like uh, we're called to agape, but what does that really look like on the ground? You know, I, I'm, you know, I'm interested in obviously what the Bible says about it, but we have to translate that into today. And that's why I wrote chapters that had to do with my LGBTQ friends. You know, I interviewed a trans friend for the book. I interview Muslims. I talk to my Muslim friends because I think that's where we're at on the ground. You know, there's a lot of folks of, you know, differing communities that we really need to reach out to and that we really need to talk about, you know, what does agape look like towards those friends? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Bible doesn't say uh, love your neighbor, but only the neighbor that looks, acts and thinks just like you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, exactly. Not quite, right? No, no, no that's not that. That would be too easy, right? So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so one of the one of the chapters that I was kind of laughing when I was rereading sections of it in preparation for this interview, um, and only because it's it's so applicable to uh, you know, obviously we're recording this right before Thanksgiving. Um, is the chapter where you talk about love within families. So obviously we're, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving in the United States. And of course the, the Christmas tradition is coming shortly after for Christians. And, um, you know, some of our listeners might be, uh, celebrating, you know, various other holidays, but the point is, you know, a lot of these traditions revolve around spending extended time with your, with your family. Um, so you talk about how sometimes for some people spending time with what you call our bio families uh, can push our ability to love to the limit. And so you talk about how in some cases, learning to love outward is important and use the term, which I love, by the way, family. Um, what do you mean yeah. by that? And why is that so helpful? Yeah, right. Yeah. Even my students who've read the book, John, they've started using the word family, which I, love I just it. loved. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, you know, family for me means our friends who have become our family, and I think there's so many listeners out there who can resonate with what I'm saying, right? Not everybody in this world has that picture-perfect family where, you know, there's people sitting around the fire and we all get along, we're sipping hot chocolate, <laughs> you know? A lot of us, our family is a play, is a beehive of division and wounds and secrets. And, you know, unfortunately... I believe in complete authenticity. I am one of those people. So my family is filled with political divisiveness, theological divisiveness, and just a lot of secrets and wounds and abuse. And instead of pretending, you know, like, oh, everybody's family, oh, family first, you know, and everyone's family is so loving. These are just, this is just a fiction, right? And I think as people of faith, we have to allow the truth to finally be spoken, which is for a lot of us, we're far closer with our family than we are with our families of origin. And I talk about in that chapter how the Bible, again, if we could just come back to scripture for a second, I think that we like to talk about ourselves. We kind of like talk about families in this way that is is like we're dressing for a first date. You know, we're, we're like all wearing our best outfits and like that's what family is really like. And I say that the Bible shows shows families in their sweatpants. You know, like yeah. the Bible is like <laughs> families completely suck. And the examples that I that I use, you know, is how, how the Bible talks about Joseph's family. We don't think about this, but Joseph's family, you know, they are the first human traffickers. They put him into human trafficking. I mean, that's exactly what they do. And they sell him into slavery. You know, that's his own family. And sure, you know, maybe a lot of our families haven't done things like that. You know, anything as bad as that. But a lot of our families have rejected us. You know, that story of Joseph, his family, they're jealous. They can't accept his dreams. He's the dreamer. And they're like, your dreams and your rainbow colored coat, we reject this. So I have a lot of fun, you know, kind of doing a midrash, which means like kind of my own imaginative interpretation of Joseph's story for a contemporary age. And I see him saying like, it's okay to leave home. You know, it's okay in the land of your misfortunes. And, you know, he, you know, Joseph's living in Egypt and he marries an Egyptian woman and starts a family. And he talks about, I have joy in the land of my misfortunes. 
he starts a new family. You know, he has a family with among people that he was told, I'm sure, by his family of origin that were people he should not have even been friends with, you know, let alone loving. And so I just I just see, you know, a real message in that for me. And I took a lot of comfort in it, which is like, if your family can't accept you, maybe that's just for right now. You know, maybe someday they'll come knocking. And even if they're not coming knocking, you can find joy and you can create a family around yourself, you know, that grace helps you create. And I call that your family. And I say, rock your rainbow, you know, (laughs) rock your dreams, rock your rainbow colored coat, because there are people who love you for who you are. And if you're one of those people and you're like going home for Thanksgiving and you're going to be home for Christmas holidays or whatever other holidays you have coming up, I just feel like it's so important to remember it's okay. You know, like I feel like it's okay to start again. It's okay to create a new family around yourself. And if you need to have Friendsgiving instead of like a Thanksgiving with your family, I say do that. And you're not alone. Oh, I love it. So, uh, one of the things that you, that you talk about, and I'm going to just to prepare you, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you to you a couple of times. Cause I love some of the, some of the things that you say in here. So, um, okay. <laughs> I hope that's not awkward, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <It's> fine. <laughs> no problem. So at one point in, in the book, you, you point out that Jesus in the Bible tries to make the point, um, that, the way that we love is too small. And you go on to say that, and I love this quote, only dilated love can give birth to new life. And that you need to, um, uh, that we need to, as you say, balloon our love past acceptable boundaries. Uh, those boundaries of acceptability need to be bulldozed because God didn't build them. Human beings did talk about that because I, that, I mean, really hammered home for me right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating to me, right? The way that Jesus is truly despised, if we think about it, by those in his own culture, because he's just, he's breaking, he's busting all the boundaries, right? He has all of these transgressive friendships. And when I think about that, I have to say, okay, so Jesus is like hanging out with women who he was not even supposed to be talking to, right? That was that was against his culture. Uh, he's talking to Canaanites. You know, those are religious outsiders, ethnic outsiders. He's talking, uh, you know, to Samaritans. Uh, again, religious outsiders. And so this is so fascinating to me because I think, okay, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to widen love's wingspan, which it seems clear to me, that Jesus is saying that we should do, who is that going to be in my day? You know, who is that right now for me? And I think about the ways in which in particular, I hear so many negative things being said about Muslims, about our our Muslim brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends. And I think, uh uh-oh, right? You know, what am I being called to do? What am I being called to do there? You know, how are we treating immigrants? How are we treating folks who are trans? How are we treating, even for that matter, people of a different political party than ourselves? And I just see Jesus being this extremely controversial figure because he's not buying it. Whoever he's told not to talk to, like if it's a tax collector, it's a prostitute, he's like, hey, yeah, I'm going to have some hummus with them this afternoon and we're going to sit down and talk, you know? It's like, I want to be that person. 
you know, but it is going to have a price. You're going to pay a price for that. I think Jesus paid a massive price for that. And I think that if you think about what happened to my book, the book is the book is paying a price, right? Like I'm paying a price because I'm choosing to stand in solidarity with people that our culture is rejecting. So when you think about then my book being rejected, when you're standing with the rejected, right? It's not really that surprising at all. And then I see the ways in which the fact that I was surprised proved that I did not have adequate humility around what I was doing. I didn't understand the depths to which people in our society right now are being shoved into the shadows. And so it's been a powerful lesson in humility for me, what it really means to be an ally, right? It's not just talking. You're get, there's going to be consequences right. and there's right. going to be, co- there's going to be costs. Ugh. Man, so I, I want to, I definitely want to keep talking about this because, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to talk about specifically the two chapters that, you know, you were initially asked to remove. Cause I think, as I told you yes. before we started to record, I think they're two of the most powerful chapters in the book. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, so one of the things that, that sprang to mind as I was reading, um, as you started to get in, into those chapters, one of the things that came to mind for me is I, I've been reading a, a lot of, uh, uh, the Jewish perspective, specifically on the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, recently, just to get a different perspective. And, and uh, you know, you used the term midrash earlier. And um, so one of the books I've been reading recently uh, is this book. It's fantastic. Everybody should get it. It's by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It's called Essays on Ethics, a weekly reading of the Jewish Bible. Uh, and he talks, mm. he has this great bit where he talks about the danger of, uh, unhealthy tribalism, where we begin to see those not of our tribe as an us versus them situation, uh, that there are those on the outside, uh, which can lead to dehumanizing those who are on the outside. And mm-hmm. you have this, you have this quote that I thought just hit the nail on the head in the book. Um, and, and you say, uh, when Jesus says we have to hate our mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, he means that we have to live in a way that shows the world your true family is infinitely more members of your own clan than your own clan, nation, race, sexuality, tax bracket, or religion. It's everyone. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so. Uh, you talk about the, the idea of, of communion being a way to view what it means to be a family. Like, talk about that. Yeah, you know, I'm one of the, I'm one of those people. I always question things, right about about even my own faith tradition. I was like, and I want to answer them for for myself. And so I was always a little freaked out by communion when I was a kid. I'm like, we're talking about the blood of Jesus and this wine is the blood of Jesus and the bread is the body. And, you know, these are all, that's really weird stuff, you know? And I have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And in the course of the writing of the book, I'm like, what? what is really going on there? You know, and it's, it's hard to say, and there's a lot of things going on, but I realized that one of the things for me that's important, and you mentioned, you know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs a minute ago, well, one of the things that I teach is I'm a Holocaust scholar. And so I know a lot about the Holocaust and you, and you think about all of the ways in which, in my view, blood becomes a heresy in that kind of genocide, right? Because it's all about keeping the Aryan blood pure. And then I just started thinking about all these ways in which the, the, the ways that 
our tribalisms are based on blood, you know, the ways in which we would do anything for our family, which is meant to be something good. But of course, we've really, really hurt a lot of other people when we're just thinking of our own, you know, people who share our genetic makeup. And so I, 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 don't, I don't even know, you know, so I started just thinking about communion and I thought, okay, isn't really what's going on there is that when we all are drinking of the same quote unquote blood and all the same body, we're just reminding ourselves that we really are all family, that we all share the same, same bloodline in in that sense. You know, the communion is what makes us all, we're God's family. We have to do it over and over again because we want to jigsaw apart the human family. It's all these disconnected fragments And I think God is like, I need you to stop already. I need you to remember you're all one human family. And, you know, even science backs up that message that I think is the message of communion. If you look at the actual, what do they say, like the the DNA differences between human beings, it's microscopic. Like we're 99.98% like the same genetic makeup. And then that tiny little bit, you know, two hundreds of 1% or whatever, is all that we have that is different. And so I feel like that really aligns with the message that I am getting out of communion, which is that, you know, love lines, not bloodlines, are what matter most. Oh, man. So one of the other parts of your book that I really enjoyed, uh, that I thought was a really neat idea, was this thing that you pull from, uh, I believe it was Martin Luther, if I remember correctly, but this idea of naming things by their right name. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that is something that I take straight from Luther that comes out of a piece he wrote called the Heidelberg Disputation. And he's got this line in there, as you say, where he says, you know, Christians are called to call things by their right names. And another translation for that same line is that we're called to to call things what they actually are. To me, this is powerful because we think about how there's so much name calling today. There's a lot of use of names that's very politically charged, very rhetorical, very dehumanizing. So I think even of the way that Immigrant or refugee, for example, those words are used very negatively now. If I can call you that, I'm almost criminalizing you, right? And so in my circles, you know, of interfaith activism and the work that I do in, in the town where I live, we call folks who are immigrants or refugees new Americans. Oh, wow. And that's the name that they, that's the name that they want to be called. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Because that's what you are. You're a new American. And think of how different that frames those folks when, you know, we're all getting together and we're meeting them. Some Americans are just newer than others, you know? And I just love that. It equals the playing field. And, and so I do have a reflection in the book on names and naming and how all of us are longing in our heart of hearts to be called by the right name. And I argue that some people call that political correctness. And I'm like, that's just love, man. You know, love calls people by the name that they want to be called. And that to me is just so important. 
And and the other thing that you note in there is that a lot of times we tend to name people by how we perceive them based on our own projections, fears, and uncertainty, uh, which is all, again, based out of our desire to control uh, things around us, right? That's correct. Control and unfortunately, John, often diminish, right? Yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can disenfranchise somebody or demonize them, then I can... I can commit any kind of violence against them that I want, whether it's physical or whether it's just emotional or using language. I mean, there's all forms of violence. And then it can be justified. If I've made them less than, less than me somehow, if I've made them into a them or a they who's not good enough or not good enough to be befriended, then, then I can justify my actions against them. And I think we see this every day in the news headlines. Oh, there's magic. So definitely, I definitely want to talk about uh, starting with the the first of the uh, the chapters uh, that you're asked to remove. I want to start with the LGBTQ uh, chapter, and you have some just devastating statistics uh, within this book. Uh, at one point, you say that an estimated one third of people who identify as LB- LGBTQ have attempted suicide at one point. Um, yeah, that's I mean that's absolutely unbelievable. And, and so mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk about that. And then also talk about the fact that, I mean, I think you, you address some of, you know, um, the so-called clobber passages within uh, the book, you know, the verses that a lot of folks like to use when condemning homosexuality. And um, you also mm-hmm. point out the fact that everyone cherry picks the Bible uh, to some extent, you know, we, we all the time we ignore verses that we feel are antiquated or outdated um, when we view mm-hmm. things through our 21st century lens. So, so talk about that a little. Yeah, yeah. I make the argument, you know, in the book that everyone's a selective literalist, but only some people are honest about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> right? You know, and of course, that just means that we're, we're cherry picking. And of course, I just use some classic examples. You know, there's a passage in the New Testament that says that it's it's a sin to braid your hair or wear gold. And yet Christians are running around with braids and wearing gold crosses around their neck. Yeah. And if you're doing that, either one of those things, you're directly against the Bible already. But we seem to think that that's fine, right? And then we're going to take these other passages, you know, that talk about, you know, same sex, sex, and we're going to say, oh my gosh, you know, like that can't be happening, you know? So I'm just simply pointing out that you you basically need to have some overriding principle by which you and your community are choosing which of those passages are, are, you know, still are working for your community today. Because of course there are Christians like the Amish who are following literally passages in the Bible that talk about, you know, that things like, um, <laughs> you know, working on certain days of the week, such as the Sabbath, you know, and even using electricity could be understood to be against the Bible. And that's why, you know, those Christians are not doing those certain practices. And that's why Orthodox Jews aren't, you know, working on the Sabbath, not even taking an elevator or driving a car on the Sabbath. Those folks are taking the Bible literally, right? Yeah. Those passages that most Christians are not. And so it's just, it's really tricky to me, like how people are deciding. So I argue that for me, I am a selective literalist, at least I'm honest. 
And the principle that my church, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that we're attempting to use to determine, okay, you know, which things really still uh, apply for us today, what do we want to put into practice is agape. The, the principle that I said before about this unconditional, undivided, undeserving love, which God extends to all human beings with no exception. And so if that's the principle, then love listens. So love listens to the LGBTQ community that says, as, as you just said, that statistic that one out of three LGBTQ folks have, you know, attempted suicide, have considered, seriously considered a suicide. And these were things that I was unfamiliar with, you know, as a younger person who was definitely raised to think of, oh, you know, like same-sex relationships, that's completely wrong. You know, that's how I was raised. And how is it that we change? And I think that we can be transformed through compassion and through listening to the stories of other people and thinking, wow, that's how our society has made you feel about yourself. You feel that much less than, that rejected, that not accepted. And I just think that can't be in line with agape. It just can't. It's not in line with other passages. I don't see Jesus rejecting anyone based on, you know, who they are. So. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so let's, let's keep going because um, there's, there's another, you know, the, the, the chapter, I can't remember if it's right after it's, it's, Soon, soon thereafter, uh, is your chapter on, <laughs> on, uh, on your Muslim friends. And this one I, I thought was, uh, especially, um, important because we, we did, so like a year ago, we did a series on, um, uh, religious diversity and, um, uh, and, and, uh, we had a few different guests on, I think we had a, a guest who represented a Hinduism and we had a uh, Muslim guest on. So we had, we had, uh, a symbol Ali Karamali who wrote the book, um, really good book, the Muslim next door. And, uh, yes. I, I had studied some, uh, some other religions in, in college and thought like, you know, that I, you know, I was, I was uh, woke as the kids say, but, <laughs> and then, and then you talk to an actual expert and you're like, wow, I really don't know a lot of stuff. Um, but I, I, I feel like it's an extra, uh, important thing, uh, to do, especially now because there's so much misinformation. That's the main thing that I learned was that there's a ton of misinformation out there, uh, from the way that, uh, Muslims are, are depicted in, on TV and in movies. And, um, you know, we never really hear, uh, stories about where they stand up against violence in the news. It's always when, um, someone's involved in a bombing or something horrific. And, uh, mm-hmm. so it was eye opening for me. And I thought that it was, uh, like, just an outstanding uh, thing for you to do to include this in the book and to fight to keep that chapter in there. So talk about your experience with your Muslim neighbors and, and why you personally felt it was important to, to keep this in there. Yeah. Well, see, I run an interfaith peace building center for my college, Concordia college. So it's my job every day to have interfaith friendships and to extend that hand and to introduce my students to our Muslim neighbors and introduce our Muslim neighbors to my students. And this is just a part of, of my life, you know, my everyday life in where I live, which is in, is in Fargo, North Dakota, which is has 6,000 Muslims, which is maybe not something that people would expect. 
So when I sat down to write a book, you know, called Love Without Limits, I thought, I need to write about what I've discovered, in, you know, in teaching in a post 9-11 classroom for my entire career, which is that people know almost nothing outside of media sound bites about Muslims. And this is tragic because obviously everybody is more than a media soundbite. And I talk in the book, I, I use the phrase that I take from a wonderful TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamanda Adichie. When I recommend everybody watch that TED talk, but she has this concept of a single story. And I think that we all can agree that there is a single story being told about Muslims today. And if I go anywhere and I say the word, okay, I'm going to say the word, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of what you immediately think of when I say it. So I will say Muslim, and everybody says terrorist, right? Oh. That's exactly the definition of a single story, right? Or you might say ISIS, which is the same thing, right? So we're associating a religion of 1.6 billion people with only the extremists of that religion, right? which would be just as absurd as associating all Christians with Westboro Baptist Church yes. or ab- abortion clinic bombers is the exact same thing. You know, there are billions of Christians. And so there are Christian extremists, you know, that makes Christians uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about that, but that's just as real, but nobody is judging me based on Christian extremism, Right. So I really am giving this summons in the book to like to get to know our Muslim neighbors. And so I share some stories, true stories in the book about some of my Muslim friends. And I use those then as an on-ramp for kind of a crash course in Islam 101, <laughs> which I, and I know the kind of things that my students are shocked at when I teach them <laughs> in Islam. And so I, those are the kind of things that I, you know, tell stories. About. So I tell, for example, I tell a story about one of my Muslim friends who was saying to me that he loves Jesus. Now, of course, I have literally hundreds of Muslim friends who have said that exact sentence. And one of the things my publishing house said when I was on the phone with them, the original editor had said to me, he's like, that's problematic. Like, you can't say this, that sentence. And I'm like, but it's what true. do you mean? Like, that's just, <laughs> it's true. I was like, well, it's so true. I was like, you didn't find this in writing, you know, from right, Muslims. that right. Muslims love Jesus. Jesus is a beloved, beloved prophet within yes. Islam. Yes. Who's born of the Virgin Mary. You know, and when I say that, people are like, wait, wait, within Islam, Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. I'm like, yes, you know, in the Quran, you know. And so these are just the things. It's easy for me as a professor of world religions to write about the things that people don't know, because every day I encounter what they don't know. And another thing that I have in that chapter that I really fought to keep is simple facts, like the fact that the name Allah just means God in Arabic. Yes. So I tell a true story, right? I tell a true story in the book about when I was worshiping at a Christian church, Christian church in the Middle East, sitting next to Christians who were worshiping in Arabic and English. And every time these Christians said the word God, they said Allah. And that was very striking to me as a young person. And of course, then, you know, I realized, well, 
This is the same as Dios in Spanish. Sure. That just means God. It doesn't mean like a different God, the way that we're being taught, you know, by the media and by politicians that Allah is some different God. That's absurd. That, that's absurd to Muslims. Right. They truly understand, right, that, that, that even, you know, the God that they love and worship is, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, like it's the God of the Bible. And this, the Quran is the new revelation from that God to a new prophet um, who is just a continuing the line of prophets from Jesus and Moses and all of those folks are are in the Quran, you know, the exact same players. So I have, I had a lot of fun in the chapter, like doing some basic teachings and, you know, um, it was devastating to see those true stories cut. It made no sense to me. Like, but they're just true things. And one thing, one final thing that I'll say about that was the other day I was giving a talk uh, on Love Without Limits. I was the keynote speaker at a conference and I was sharing, you know, they, they were like, well, what kind of things did the, did the publishing house want you to cut about Islam? And I shared the three stories, you know, like two of which I just shared now. And there was this woman in the audience and she just looked stunned. And she came up to me afterward and she still looks stunned. And I was like, what, you know, is everything all right? You know, she was like, I'm speechless. She's like, I am Muslim. And I listened to your talk, and the three things that you fought to keep in the book are the three things that I have fought my entire life to teach Christians that are true about my religion. Oh. And she she hugged me, and I I knew in that moment everything, all the money I lost, like all of it, it was all worth it. Yeah. I thought, see, totally worth it. Totally worth it. It's just amazing how much disinformation is out there. And, and like, and those are just some of the most basic, uh, you know, beliefs, uh, within, within that yeah. religion. It's like, Oh, come on people like Google. We have Google now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> information is at your fingertips, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. and, and by the way, I'll, I'll leave, I won't, I won't, I won't quote this because I want people to buy her book, but the, um, uh, I believe it was your friend Jamila, uh, where she she's asked uh, her favorite verse or favorite quote from the the Quran, and the, the verse yeah. the first that she gives is absolutely beautiful. So, um, it, so there it now. is. And I often quote Jamila. I often quote a verse that she gave John when I'm giving talks on the book, and I don't say that it's from the Quran at first. I'll just read it. Oh, and it sounds exactly like a verse that any Christian could get behind. It's a beautiful, stunning quote about God's forgiveness and how it's infinite. Oh. And it's straight out of the Quran. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Stunning. yeah. So one of the things that, that I love, that uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing this, it's uh, you, you do this thing where you, um, you, you take the, the story of the Good Samaritan and you kind mm-hmm. of update it. Uh, in a, in a way to, um, in order to get us to understand the, the shock value that it would have had, uh, for the people in that time period. I was wondering mm-hmm. uh, if you, if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to share, uh, the, the updated version, uh, with the yeah. listeners. Yeah. Happy to do so. Happy to do so. Yeah. So I was thinking about the Samaritan parable while I was writing love without limits and I was trying to think, Okay, you know, all the stories that Jesus tells, they get him in so much trouble. But the context is lost on us. We don't we don't understand all the time, you know, why Jesus was constantly a man in trouble. 
And as I was doing, you know, research and reflection and prayer upon the Samaritan parable, it, it became clear to me what's why that's such a shocking parable. You know, so one of the things that we may not realize is that it, to Jesus's community, the Samaritans were religious outsiders. Now, technically, they're practicing the same religion, right? They're worshiping the same God. They're technically Jewish, but they're doing it wrong, right? You know, so the difference between Samaritans and Jesus's own um, Jewish brothers and sisters was that the Samaritans built a temple in Samaria and were worshiping there instead of the holy ground of Jerusalem's temple. And that was considered heretical. That was considered just totally out of bounds, right? Like totally false, you know, these are the religious outsiders. And so once we understand that, the Samaritan parable makes a different kind of sense because the Samaritan parable, Jesus is telling the story, you know, everybody's on their way down to Jericho, which would signify to us, right? Or signify to his own listeners, right? That they're, that they're Jewish and they're just on their way to a religious holiday, right? They're on their way to a religious celebration. So all of these Jewish folks, people of Jesus' own tradition, right, are just passing by, right? They're passing this person by who's in the gutter. And then there's this religious outsider, the one who's doing it wrong, the one who's worshiping God wrong, is the one that then Jesus is like, yeah, that's the person we should all go and be like. You know, like, be like this dude that you've been taught does everything wrong. So if we understand the context and we do the historical homework, that's what we see. So I was like, okay, so if we were to retell Jesus's, you know, Samaritan parable in the 21st century, how would we tell it? And so I rewrite it. And I have since preached on it many times. And boy, do people squirm in the pews when I do this. <laughs> it, it's, proof, it's proof that I've probably done it right, right? Because it's exactly. like so offensive. Yeah. So I, I think about, okay, who, who am I being told nowadays is the religious outsider? Who am I being told? I'm being told that that's Muslims. So I rewrite the parable. I like set the Samaritan parable um, in Detroit, you know, and somebody's been mugged and they're, you know, lying there at the out of the road and all the Christians pass by. And who is it who stops and helps the person who's been beaten and robbed? It's a Muslim. And the Muslim man takes the person who's been beaten, takes him to the hospital, pays for everything, is like, hey, I'm going to skip work and I'm going to sit here by your hospital bedside. I know you don't have insurance, but I'm going to pay for everything. And then we envision that at the end of that story, Jesus is like, yeah, Christians, go and be like this Muslim. Go and do likewise. And that, to me, is the appropriate retelling of the shock that would have occurred to Jesus's own listeners when they heard the Samaritan parable. So I like to retell it that way, to be like, okay, now what do you think? Right? Jesus's love is so radical it's a scandal. It's a scandal to everybody. It's, it's offensive, quite frankly. And I think we have to realize that grace offends. Grace is so universal. Grace is so, um, what do we want to say, undeserved, you know, that it is just, it's hard for us to accept it. I, I want to sing
so there's there's two sections uh, that I definitely want to make sure we cover. That um, so I didn't tell you this before, but you are our final interview. You will be our final interview in 2018. So this will come out right before Christmas. And oh, good. Yeah. So. I think this is the the perfect uh, topic to talk about, especially going into the holidays. And the holidays can be rough for a lot of people. And and so one of the things that a lot of people, you know, out there are, are probably dealing with um, is is the issue of of what you call uh, the love of self. So uh, self love and taking <laughs> care of yourself, which has been viewed as a negative thing for a long time. It's viewed as being prideful. Uh, but you you kind of address this because in in the in the current sense. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we're looking at pride, not quite the right way, I guess. So I'll, I'll let you take it from there because I think this is really important. Yeah. Okay. So thank you. Yes. I think, you know, I teach C.S. Lewis in some of my classes and mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis continues to be one of the best selling Christian books in the world. And C.S. Lewis has got this chapter, right. And it's called the greatest sin. And if you read the chapter, according to C.S. Lewis, the greatest sin is pride. And, you know, as a person who lives in the 21st century, I'm like, really, C.S. Lewis? Because (laughs) it makes me think of the ways in which pride is so needed by marginalized and minoritized communities right in my own backyard. Right. And I think about the ways in which some of my students, uh, for example, I have a gay student who recently came out to me and that student was rejected by his church. He's been rejected by his parents and he does not carry around a lot of self-love. Right. We internalize the rejection that we receive from those who should love us and who who don't love us enough. Right. And it made me think about how gay pride is so important, how black pride has been important for decades. And why is that? Because not everybody is taught the same amount of self-love in our culture. It's just not true, right? Even as a woman, I have not been taught the same amount of self-love as I would say my own brother or a lot of the men that I know. And until we start admitting this, right, that there is this lie operating within our culture that not everyone's life matters quite the same, right? Uh, not everyone is entitled to equal belonging. Not everyone's entitled to that, to that, you know, amazing love. I think that then we have to rethink pride and we have to say to C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, you're speaking as a white guy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> who yeah. had probably plenty of privilege. And for you, you maybe needed to scale that back a notch. But for people who've been taught to hate themselves, and there are a lot of those people out there, those people need an entirely different message from a God who loves without limits. They need the message that you are loved without limits, no matter what this culture is telling you about your inferiority and your less than status. And so I take a very strong stand and I use a personal experience. You know, I think all theology is contextual. And I talk about what I learned growing up in an abusive house. So those of you who are headed into, you know, the the winter holidays and maybe that's the kind of home you have to go back to as well. Um, It's so important to remember that Jesus taught 
love your neighbor as yourself because he knew that so many people are not even taught to love themselves. And we, we have so little to give to someone else unless we have that, that solid foundation of self-love. So I, I just feel like we have to stop that one-size-fits-all preaching and teaching that pride is bad because it's not for some people's life-saving. Oh, that's good. Um, so w- one of the other things that, that I think is important to talk about that you discuss in the book, especially, again, heading into the holidays, um, because some of us out, out there uh, might be heading into the holidays for the first time with, without someone uh, that we love. And so you, you talk mm-hmm. about grief, and I think that's so hugely important. And I don't think, as Christians, oftentimes we talk about it enough. And, and specifically, you talk about uh, what you call grief shaming. Uh, talk about that a little bit. What, what is grief shaming? Yeah, this is a a phrase that I coined because I have suffered the effects of grief shaming, as I'm sure that many, many people have who are listening. So we all know what body shaming is, right? Which is shaming people for their bodies. I think that we also shame folks whose grief is is taking too long, right? Or or is a little too ugly or a little too messy and complicated and and it's getting in our way of our, you know, don't worry, be happy kind of culture. And so I tell the story in the book of, 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 you know, a time when I actually went to see a grief counselor. I lost my mother when I was very young. She had early onset Alzheimer's. And most of my adult life was, you know, struggling with the loss of her and, and, and her death, her, the loss of her memory, and then, and then the loss of her to death. And I, I, there was just so much ah, pressure to get over it you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, sometimes I was like, no, I just want to grieve. I just want to be able to lament. I don't want to be the recipient of everybody's pious platitudes about how my mother's better off and she's in a better place and God needed another angel. And, you know, just all that crap, quite honestly, I think all that's BS. And I think it hurts people, right, who just genuinely need space to lament the loss that life has delivered them. And so I make a plea to stop with the grief shaming, you know, yes. and, and to, to stop thinking that people who are grieving are people who've lost hope or they've lost their faith or their faith is weak. Uh, this just isn't true. You know, Jesus cried when Lazarus died. He wept his eyes out publicly and he didn't even apologize for it. Are we going to say that Jesus had lost sight of hope in the resurrection? I mean, Jesus is the dude who's going to resurrect Lazarus in five minutes. So, you know, so it's like clearly we're missing the point. And to me, the point of that story is that our tears are legitimate. God legitimizes our tears and that they're never more legitimate um, than when someone we love has died. And Jesus's own tears give us license to that. Yeah, and I feel like I shouldn't have to point this out, but Jesus is also a guy. So, guys, it's okay to grieve and to cry also. <laughs> Show a little emotion, <laughs> boys. Come on. <laughs> exactly. And I even talk about that, like, in the, to the phrase, man up. Yeah. Like, where is that coming from? Like, you know, it so clearly unhelpful, shouldn't apply right? to. It's so unhelpful. And it, it's basically saying to men, like, don't cry. And, you know, one of the most powerful experiences I've had, and this is the first time I've talked about this in any of my podcasts, but... I was the speaker at an all men's conference last summer 
right after I had lost the book and it had not yet been sold to Fortress Press. And I have to tell you, I was pretty down in the dumps, but I'd had the invitation for a long time. So I was like, I'm going to do it. Uh, but it was an all male retreat called the bold gathering. And it was, I forget, something like 700 men. And they said I was the first female speaker that they'd ever had that they could ever recollect, like speaking at that conference. And you know what I spoke about? Grief. That was one of the main, I gave, I gave like the three different talks, but the main talk that I gave was on what I just said. And I talked about that phrase, man up, and how the horrible consequences of that toxic masculinity are for our culture and how the last thing Christians should be doing is ascribing to that if we truly look at Jesus as an example. And those men were so wonderful to me. Like I got a standing ovation for that talk. Oh, that's amazing. And I had so many incredible conversations. Men came up to me. They were crying. They were telling me stories about what had happened to them because the point of my talk was we have to tell our real stories of shame and grief. It's the only way out of the prison of shame is to share those with one another and set one another free. Oh, absolutely. We have to, we have to, as, as Christians, give our fellow Christians permission, uh, to, to fully grieve. I I love it. That's right. -hmm. So I know, I know we're running, uh, short on time here together, but, um, I think the best way to, uh, to probably close this out is, um, you talk about at the end of the book, uh, Jesus mission to bring peace and reconciliation. And you break down the meaning between two really crucial words, one in Hebrew, the word Shalom, and one in Greek, and I'm probably going to mess this up, but the word Irene. Uh-huh. Irene, yeah. Hey, beautiful. Mm-hmm. I did it. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that it's interesting to me that biblically peace has to do with wholeness. You know, that's what it means. It doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It means wholeness. And what I talk about is that Peace has to be built upon a foundation of justice, but that's not going to feel like love to those who currently have privilege. So to me, that's kind of, I want to be honest about that, you know, so like for those of us who have a lot of privilege now, a love without limits that's going to be extended to everyone equally is going to feel like we're losing something. You know, people of privilege will feel like, you know, they've lost something. And I just, you know, I do some reflecting in the book about how important it is to remember that true peace has to be built on a foundation of justice. And that's going to feel like loss to some people, while other people are going to be singing hallelujah, you know? Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, before we let you go and get back to your evening, uh, t- tell folks, because I... I cannot recommend this book enough. And I think, uh, our listeners who are signed up for our, we have a little book club thing where we mail out books monthly, uh, are going to get a surprise in the mail. So I think they're absolutely going to get your book this month, but for those that are not, uh, part of the book club, where can they find your book and where can they stay on top of what you're up to? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking. So the book is available anywhere books are sold, right? So it's on Amazon, it's on barnesandnoble.com, it's on IndieBound, which is a website of independent booksellers if you prefer to go that route. And you can always follow me. You can friend me on Facebook. I'm absolutely fine with that so you can see what I'm up to. But I also have a website 
JacquelineBussy.com. And you can see all of my speaking engagements. I have a lot coming up and you're always welcome to come to any of those. And you can also contact me via my website if you want me to come and speak at your church or whatever you might, or your university, whatever you might have going on. I would more than welcome that. And I would love to hear from anybody who has read the book. I'd be honored. So oh, stay in touch. That's awesome. I love it. And we're, and we're absolutely, Adam and I will, will, will come find you when you, when you come to Columbus. So, um, so oh, people, thank you. That'd be great. go get the book. Thank you, uh, to Amazon press for, um, having the guts to, to publish this thing as is, it needs to be heard. And to quote you, uh, you know, Love is uh, not a candle. It's the freaking sun. So amen to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. Can't be blown out. That's right. That's right. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much. This I w- We were so excited to have you on and uh, did not disappoint. I think uh, the listeners are going to love this. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your, out of your evening to, uh, to chat with us. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. Too
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.